This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. Celebrating Reunion Weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. We're normally live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, but today is our special reunion radio broadcast. Our show focuses on how established firms can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges, and we bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and work with us. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Today, we're going to catch up with two Wharton alumni who are visiting campus this weekend for their reunion and find out what interesting things they've been up to. Coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Brian Fields, the vice president of Things to Do at Groupon. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Brendan Cahill, a 2008 Wharton MBA grad. Brendan is the founder and leader of Penguin Random House Labs. That's the team that focuses on innovation in printed books for the publishing giant. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's great to see you. It's great to be here. It's nice. We're, of course, old friends. We know each other from undergrad. You happened to be in my class when you were doing your (laughs) MBA, which is a nice touch and pleasant surprise. How does it feel, ba- feel to be back on campus? Well, it's always great to be back on campus. And uh, I'm also, uh, I am also serve as a board member for University of Pennsylvania Press, so I do have occasion to come back here a little more often. <laughs> but uh, it's great to see all my old colleagues and my old professors here. It's, just, uh, it's, it's always invigorating to be back at Wharton, especially as you're seeing what everybody's up to. And one good thing is that you actually, at least now, live here in the area as well, right? How's that going? I do. I do. I uh, I live here. I work in New York. Uh, I, as I explained to people, I, I can't really work remotely. You can't do innovation work really remotely. So, <laughs> um, But uh, because of life circumstances and family circumstances, it made sense for us to be here. So uh, so I, I do have the joy of being in the Philadelphia area and, and enjoying the Eagles championship and uh, in my hometown. No, that's great. I wanted to put in that plug also because, you know, we're trying very hard to bring Amazon's uh, headquarters or second headquarters here as well. And some of us have worked on that pitch. And so uh, I want to make sure we tout the benefits of being here in this region, too. For sure. So tell us about your role and what your innovation lab that you created does. And how'd you get here? Sure. So um, uh, I joined Penguin Random House uh, a little over five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on the cusp of taking a job in uh, Comcast doing strategy development uh, after I'd left being a CEO of a startup. Um, in fact, I'd verbally accepted the offer. But before I signed the dotted line, I got introduced to uh, Marcus Dola, the uh, global CEO of, of then Random House, which was on the cusp of um, uh, merging with Penguin, which was interestingly – the company that I worked at prior to business school when I was a book editor. So um, <laughs> we had a very interesting conversation that kind of went from being super informal to very serious and very formal um, in uh, lightning fast. And I wound up joining him. Uh, and there's there's even more to that, which I know we're going to get into. But I wound up joining him doing strategy work for the first couple of years as we merged the two companies together, uh, doing everything from doing uh, you know, working on the global brand of Penguin Random House, bringing in the house of brands that is Random House with the the unified uh, uh, branded house of Penguin with the, the the bird, the iconic bird, and how do we handle that? What does that mean in terms of how the company operates? Lots of technology questions. Having been a uh, technology uh, software startup CEO. Um, dealt a lot with the architecture of the company from a uh, API standpoint, CRM standpoint. Ultimately, that evolved to a role where I began to uh, want to look at how we could use the technologies that we've been modernizing the company with mm-hmm. to create a strategic lever for new revenue opportunities. And that gestated this concept of 
uh, of a labs concept, to be able to, to take a product development type of approach to be able to implement uh, innovation in a, in a small way that could then be scaled. So small rapid fire tests, um, you know, uh, encountering um, and incorporating some uh, lean enterprise principles, some human-centered design principles as we were pivoting the company to become more consumer-centric. Yeah. And, uh, but finding ways that we could do things that were fast to market. In the first year, I brought in the CTO for my startup, Kyle Gerard. Um, it was a fantastic business mind and product mind in addition to being a, a phenomenal engineer. Um, and then we sort of built a, a very small, fast-moving team together where we could uh, be a force multiplier joining with different pieces of the company to create rapid, particularly consumer-focused prototypes in the first year. Now, as we've moved in from the second year into the third year, we're really looking to, to leverage those into new types of partnerships that then have bigger market meaning in a, in a very disrupted marketplace. Can you give us an example of a specific product or service and how you've done that? Sure, of course. Um, so, uh, for example, we did a lot of uh, work in direct-to-consumer retail, so we're doing experiments about retail out of a traditional store type of context. Mm -hmm. How do people buy books? How would they discover books? Um, we uh, worked with Shopify to develop, um, build off of their platform uh, of APIs to, to create cart technologies that could be both mobile checkout as well as online checkout. Mm -hmm. And that powered experiments that we did with uh, a pop-up store in Puerto Rico that we enabled uh, with a local partner that then became a permanent store they wound up taking over. Uh, we did uh, direct-to-consumer sales at Comic-Cons. Um, where we were able to then gather consumer information because we were using uh, mobile technologies that we had heard for and not had. Um, we did direct-to-consumer um, experiments around products, including with HBO's Game of Thrones, where we mm -hmm. created a uh, a collectible box uh, with a collectible book and, and, other, and other items uh, for George R. R. Martin fans um, that we both took online orders as well as in-person orders at Comic-Cons with using those technologies. And um, and that just allowed us to, to see how consumers wanted to uh, acquire, discover, talk about books, experience books. And now we're able to, to use those as conversation pieces as well as now knowledge points that we can bring, we can bring to our retail and other partners to enable their businesses to, to grow and evolve um, in a very rapidly changing 21st century retail environment. Okay, this is extremely fascinating to me. And the reason is that we often hear about how the print and physical medium and brick and mortar is on its decline. We see a lot of doomsday predictions and there have been trends in that direction because everything seems to be going digital. You're actually looking to buck that trend and to really challenge that and counter that. And it's really interesting because if we look at someone like Amazon, too, with their purchase of Whole Foods or their creation of these stores, I recently saw one in New York as well in a very prominent uh, mall location, we're seeing a little bit of a, a, a movement towards maybe having some physical presence as well or physical you know, uh, products, even when they could go online or go digital in some form. How do you see that evolving, and um, wh what's your prediction about what will happen there? Is this sustainable, or is this the little something that we try and keep on hang the, on to? This is a very meta question, so I'm going to yeah. sort of step back and and uh, because we're here, we're Wharton, I'm going to give you a little frameworky for a moment. So, <laughs> great, great. So, um, so I, I think the the first piece of of this is it's 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 this what we're experiencing is far beyond Amazon. And Barbara Kahn gave a, a talk yesterday about uh, the future of retail yeah. as part of our Wharton reunion um, slide. And, and it was I actually took pictures of those slides, sent them to my team on Slack, and, and really sort of <laughs> said like, "Hey, this is this is what we're doing." Yeah. Um, and uh, but even at a more metal level beyond retail, it's we're in this age of disruption. Yeah. This is an age of disruption, and you know, Mark Andreessen talks about um, software is eating the world. Um, we're seeing uh, S and P tenure. There's been studies that, that have that have come out about how we've gone from you know 1965, the average tenure of an S and P company was 33 years. Now um, you know we're coming down to about 14 years in S and P, and it's just mm -hmm. it's it's that that life cycle is changing, and that disruption is occurring for a lot of mega trend reasons, technology. Um, globalization, major, major trends. Um, and uh, it's not just Amazon or the, or the four horsemen even, if you think about you know, Facebook, Apple, yeah. et cetera, or, or Fang, if you include Netflix, et cetera, Google. Um, but uh, they are the drivers. In many ways, they're the chief beneficiaries of, mm -hmm. of these, these mega changes and this technologization and, and liberation, if you will, of, of consumers um, mm -hmm. who can now move much faster. But um, – 
because of that, you know, being this age of disruption, as as an incumbent um, who who believes in um, in a mission to bring books and nourish the love of, of reading uh, across the world as we connect authors and readers to increase human knowledge and hum- unlock human potential, which is part of the Penguin Random House mission, which, yeah. again, when I worked for the Global CEO, I helped write while yeah. we were doing the branding project. It yeah. wasn't just about the colors and the logo. It was about what we mean in the 21st century. Um, so n- disruption from without – yeah. Necessitates transformation from within for the, yeah. for 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 these organizations. If you're going to be meaningful, yeah. if you're going to have a meaning for people, and it's not just about dollars and cents, it's not just about competitive position. It's really about about what you mean at, at this much greater level for society, mm-hmm. um, which we take exceedingly important as as purveyors of knowledge and and inspiration and and creativity. Um, so. So what does that mean in terms of what companies need to do? There's there's these new there's new skill sets that you need to to, to think about, and and uh, our dean Jeff Garrett was talking about it yesterday in terms yeah. of what Wharton's doing to create a big data center to look at um you know to to look at how we do data analytics and finance differently. For for us, as I mentioned, it's it's a lean enterprise. Eric Reese, who's one of the Penguin Random House authors, obviously with Lean Startup, uh, teaches some other school somewhere, but uh, <laughs> but still has some Maybe good ideas. Less, yeah. you know, applying those as an entrepreneur, applying those into being able to fast MVP. Uh, concepts, etc., yeah. and then also you know, human-centered design yeah. concepts, which emanate both from you know the Stanford D School as well as uh, practitioners like IDEO and others. We're sort of taking yeah. the best of that and applying it into this uh, to support this. You know, as as Wharton professor Peter Fader uh, talks about moving from a product-centric product-centric company to a consumer-centric company. So, um, so, so that um, you know. Uh, that sort of for me, there's a there's a great Shaolin proverb that mm-hmm. I'll you know, uh, I'll mention here because I published a book about this once. Yeah. So uh, tying it back to my my days in pre Wharton as an editor, um, there's a Shaolin that's saying that says, um, take big problems and make them little problems. Yeah. Take little problems and make them no problems. When little problems become big problems, fist, sword, spear. Yeah. And trying to assess whether you're in this, hey, is this a little problem yeah. or is this a big problem? Like what's your taxonomy? And then when that little problem of, you know, say a company like Amazon, which is a small entrant in 1995 and we were the had the gift of disruption to, to the book space was the first one that it disrupted. Yeah. And became this disruption engine for you know the entire unlocking new value and an amazing company you know, one of the, the the great companies of the 21st century, but within its wake creating all this change, for us as a company like how do we then step up our game? What is fist sword spear to respond to that? And yeah. that's where you know again the third leg of this this conversation is this innovation leadership. Yeah. So and that's I think that's the X factor that connects. How to become from the disrupted to to become not a disruptor per se yourself, um, but really uh, a transformation uh, yeah, moment for yeah. your company, and that's and that involves it's not just you know for traditional media businesses changing from B to B to C yeah. to, to 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 D to C per se. That's it's it's more than that. There's an entire ecosystem. To think about. Yeah, you have to have a gestalt about both what your meaning is as well as how you interact with it. Um, yeah. and that's where. You know, it's it's technology plus this new customer view. And for us, you know, customers aren't just Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Yeah. We really need to think about the consumer, that lifetime value for that that individual consumer, and using those principles that we talked about to be able to create these things to understand those consumers better, so we can work better with the entire ecosystem. Everybody from the author yeah. to the editor to the the person who picks up a book in a store uh, or finds out about our books o- online, and yeah. that's. That's the meta thing that we're trying to do here in our part of the world. But I think every incumbent business is challenged to rethink really from first principles yeah. what their meaning is in a world where Facebook, Amazon, Google, you know, Apple and others are atomizing you know, and, 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 com- and competing in radically different ways and attracting consumers in very different ways and locking them into these new ecosystems that – in the past, you know, we didn't have to really think about. You know, technology yeah. was separate from all of these. But in a technology is eating the world sort of, you know, overview, yeah. you have to really think about how you – what your business matters. And and I'll say one last thing and I, if you're, you're about to say a question. But the one last thing is, you know, we often – you often hear like, well, you're not a technology company. Yeah. And I don't think that's the answer anymore. I think – 
software is in the world. Every company is a technology company yeah. to some extent. You have to have an approach. The question is, are you a good technology company? Do you use technology in the right way, yeah. at the right level, in the right places? Are you leveraging it properly or or not? Are you over-investing in the wrong places? Are you over-technologizing or sure. under-technologizing? Then you're a bad technology company. But that, that, that strata that supports everything you have to do, data analytics, all of that is it has to be part of the lifeblood of your company, and that necessitates very different technological approach. Absolutely. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to our special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Chaudhary, and I'm speaking with Brendan Cahill, founder and leader of Penguin Random House Labs. Let me unpack some of the things that you're talking about, right? Because so clearly when, if I interpret you correctly, when we look at customer experiences, you know, and reading or consuming content of various kinds, um, there's a role for the digital and the non-digital, physical and all that stuff. That's one thing. The second thing, you told us about the principles that are driving your innovation lab. Um, and clearly, disruption is happening across so many industries. But you make it sound really easy, okay? <laughs> it's really hard to get a storied, established, for a long time, extremely successful giant that dominated an industry to make these kind of changes, what are some of the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Sure. Um, those are significant. I, I mean, being able to create the understanding that there is this seismic change occurring, even though uh, our industry, the book publishing industry, is having rec record profitability. You yeah. know, Double-digit you know, EBIT margins are now become standard amongst the big five publishers, ourselves and our, and our traditional competitors. A lot of that is driven by the efficiencies that Amazon has in the marketplace. Yeah. They, they they have contributed to the death of uh, of very inefficient sales channels like yeah. Borders, for example, and that's weeded that out. Amazon is the most efficient sales channel you can potentially imagine, and they're mm -hmm. always getting more and more efficient. However, some of those inefficiencies that you have that Amazon's weeding out also create opportunities for discovery for us. Mm -hmm. So even though some of our metrics improve – some of our other metrics of how many points that we can actually distribute to yeah. then become winnowed. So uh, aligning on looking at metrics that maybe weren't your traditional metrics around what success means for your company, yeah. how you manage that, what those implications are as you game them out. If Amazon continues to take X amount of share each year, what does it mean in terms of how we interact with our other players? And as I mm -hmm. said, we, we love Amazon. We work with them. We, we, we strive to work with them better than we work with it with any other, other partner. And yeah. we're, 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 you know, I, like so many other people of my generation, are in awe of what they've been able to achieve. Yeah. But there's an importance in, in uh, diversification of, yeah. of, of and, and it's not right for everybody. And, and it's, uh, another people wanted to, to, dis to discover books in different environments. And we want to help empower that discovery in any environment that consumers want. And perhaps environments that don't yet exist that might even be better yeah. for how people consume things in the physical world as they encounter spaces. And retail, as we were saying, ha is changing so quickly. Yeah. Barbara Kahn talked about this at some length in, in terms of how customer experience is changing. And, and you look at you know our, our friends from Warby Parker and others that like create an in-store experience Absolutely. where, hey, they were a d digital native vertical brand. Why do they need a store? Well, you, you do to be able to create a an atmosphere that, that creates discovery and allow you to tell a story about your brand and interact with your consumers and gather some of the data that you can't get you know, sitting separate miles away from them, actually being face to face with them just yields a lot of of, of new um, new data, both um, both quantitative and qualitative data. And I think that's one of the reasons that my team uses human centered design and pushes that so much is yeah. that the qualitative data informs so much about what the future can be. That just purely looking at quantitative data, you can't. You can't bridge that imaginative gap between what is now and what can be. But, you know, so, so I buy all that. But you're very positive. You're actually looking at disruption not only as, oh, it's challenging me in a negative way and I have to, you know, fear for all I have, let me protect. But you embrace the efficiency gains or the new experiences that you can get out of doing some things better or, or uh, moving in a, in a direction that's more future oriented. But I'm sure not everybody thinks like that in the company because they've got a lot to lose, maybe personally or pride, or they just believe that, look, this is the way we've been doing things. And so there's a lot of inertia there. How do you break that and get them to convert to that mindset that you seem to have embraced? 
Well, there is a question as, as to whether you need to convert everybody to that mindset. Great you know, point. Does the whole company move to that? And one of the, one of the frameworks that I've uh, encountered over the last couple of years that I felt was really – was really great um, is uh, Martin Reeves's Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, yeah. uh, which came out a couple of years ago, uh, not published by Penguin Random House, so it's not a plug for <laughs> my company. It's written by a BCG consultant. Obviously, I'm ex-BCG, so maybe it's a little bit. But uh, <laughs> um, And his original HB, H, Harvard Business Review article was actually written by a uh, BCG colleague of mine, Claire Love. So that's yeah. kind of how I happened to discover it because I, I know her. Um, but it's it's a really wonderful framework that talks about the different environments within the strategic uh, palette of the company yeah. in terms of parts that are sort of the, the classical Michael Porter parts of your company. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of that in our business in terms of what we do for a lot of our comparative advantage for supply chain and other things where scale really does matter. Mm-hmm. But when you look at other parts of our company where you where there is more unpredictability um, in terms of the marketplace, then you have the opportunity you know, in the marketplace to, to be adaptive mm-hmm. and change with what, say, Amazon is doing, mm-hmm. or you have the opportunity to maybe shape the market and mm-hmm. help redefine it. And as, as the biggest player in, uh, in the world of what we call uh, trade publishing or what, what we sort of colloquially call commercial consumer publishing yeah. for books, um, we have both the opportunity and, and I argue, a responsibility to do so. The, the question around resourcing of that, I yeah. think, is it's an ongoing conversation within the company. How much do we resource the, the new bets Absolutely. and sort of these new opportunities? Yeah. And that's, that's always the question you know, for the last 20 or so years since the alchemy of growth and some of those classics yeah, about it yeah. is like how do, you, how do you begin to really manage those different horizons of growth, if you will, or yeah. those different sort of opportunities, that portfolio uh, as you do it, you know, uh, a mature portfolio co- parts of your company, obviously, you can use Dogstar, et cetera. But when you're in that question mark area, how do you create those? How do you how do you pump those up and build those just enough yeah. so that you can understand what the growth path is? And that's why that's why creating a product team for me was really important, both using what I had done in you know, from a product standpoint, having been a startup CEO, yeah. but also for the purpose of, of uh, an incumbent company to be able to do things light and fast yeah. and rapid prototyping where we actually talk to end consumers. That's really been, I feel, instrumental in being able to, to get some cards on the table for us to be able to look at the variety of things that where consumers are moving towards and what the possibilities are so that the executive leadership of the company can really have a much more um, grounded conversation about, okay, this is not a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. This is not an imaginative you know, possibility. We've seen analogies in other industries. So we're, you know, we're, you know, we're traditionally, obviously, book publishing is a very capital constrained business because so much of our, our, of our capital goes towards our authors. Sure. That's where the, the big sort of you know, venture capital, if you will, I'm putting that in the air quotes for those listening in, um, sort of bets are it's, it's on the authors. If you're, you know, betting multiple million dollars on a John Grisham, you know, that's, that's, that's where the money goes for us to be bet. Whereas traditionally the, business part of our uh, of our business the the you know uh, yeah. sales operations all those things that are underneath it try to be very you know sort of toyota you know mm-hmm. sort of you know, cost mm-hmm. conscious you know lean in that sort of sense um how do you marry that toyota part of the business with maybe this tesla part of the business and that's where so the hits the road so your approach sounds like you demonstrate a little bit of benefit in order to persuade people. And I like the point that you made about you don't need to convince everybody and not everybody needs to change, right? Um, So do you prototype things and convince people? Or is it that they bought your more conceptual arguments around how other industries do it and how we need to do it? What's it like in terms of the innovation culture and the people you work with, the top management? Uh, It's a a work in progress. Let's let's be honest. Um, You know, it was very novel for us to create a team like this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nested within the operations team of the company because there really isn't a, a superstructure elsewhere for it. So that's, yeah. that's definitely unusual when you're you know, in executive meetings with people who are doing really important day-to-day, like keep the lights on stuff work. And then yeah. all of a sudden they're pivoting to this conversation where I'm talking about prototypes that you know, can make a market difference for us three, five years out. Yeah. That's you know, sometimes uh, a bit awkward of a fit. But at the same time, they being involved in the day to day, they know how rapidly what they're seeing is changing, mm-hmm. and you know, well, and their teammates underneath them will ask, well, "What can we do about it?" We can present we can present some some credible answers for what the possibilities are, and again, because we're 
we're not just a, a skunk works program. We're yeah. not just doing R and D for R and D's sake. We are are doing things that are very applied in terms yeah. of 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 the uh, the consumers and and having the the as my as my boss or our CEO likes to say like well survey is the lowest form of data and my counter is <laughs> well you know dollars. I went to Wharton. Dollars are the highest form of data. So if we can get actual consumers to actually put actual money on the things that we're trying in these trials, that's the most important data point we can gather in terms of what these opportunities are and in terms of what their meaning for the business can be going forward. Yeah, I like that. The the direct tie to the bottom line. Now, you mentioned the connection to Wharton. I want to come back to that. So. Is there anything you did at Wharton which has prepared you particularly well in general in your career, but especially for what you're doing now and, and your role at uh, Penguin and Random House? And uh... of course, uh, I mean th- there was a, there was a variety of things. Uh, I was involved just because of some friends in my cohort. My first year, I sort of stumbled into the startup plan competition, mm-hmm. wrote my first startup plan, and joined the venture initiation program that we did sort of in the in the second year. Little did I know that within a couple of years, I'd actually be a startup CEO yeah. and pitching to uh, successfully pitching both to uh, to uh, West Coast venture capital and raising double digit millions as well as, you know, angels um, of various sizes mm-hmm. um, for, for even an earlier stage company that, that I subsequently joined. So that that was you know definitely part of it. And again, an unexpected part of my path. But um, but even more proximately, and, and as you well know, um, <laughs> uh, my second year, uh, I went from your corporate development class and said, like, hey, you know, there's been these rumors, you know, it was the heyday of private equity then in 2007 or so, there was rumors about my previous company, Penguin, which was then part of Pearson, um, that they were going to do a spinoff financed by private equity. So I said, you know, why don't I, like, take a semester and actually create, like, what a private equity pitch book would be for this yeah. and try to understand, you know, alternative financing is going to be such an important part of the future of media, both VC and, and PE. Yeah. Uh, we, we, so we were beginning to see that then. We're seeing it a lot more in spades now. Um, and uh, and I use that sort of as an example because of Penguin. I knew it so well as uh, a chance to do it. Uh, you were my advisor, which was was <laughs> wonderful to do. My my daughter was born during the middle of that semester, so it was totally crazy. First child we had, and you know, in the middle of everything. But uh, but it allowed me to connect with some of my you know colleagues who had private equity backgrounds and had done corporate transformations to begin sort of comparing some of the ideas that I had had, having been inside mm-hmm. Penguin. About what what it would be if you took it, you know, totally separated and and into a a rearranged company. Um, I created a report, which I then, you know, uh, got some feedback from some people in the industry on, just sort of for fun. Mm-hmm. I wound up going to BCG, uh, uh, obviously subsequently, but uh, but I kept copies of that, and you know, wound up joining a disruptive uh, ebook startup as as first uh, first. Uh, non-founder employee, um, and mm-hmm. then became recruited, recruited to become a CEO of a, of a mobile app startup in the outdoor lifestyle space, which we pivoted towards a social media mm-hmm. um, movement. But then, I was when when that sort of didn't pan out as you know, startups often don't, <laughs> yeah. uh, or at least in the way you expect. Um, I was on the cusp of taking a job here in Philadelphia, um, yeah. doing uh, strategic development under Sam Schwartz's group um, at uh, at Comcast, uh, and a great group, really amazing stuff. Um, doing really interesting things in, in the video space, which was very exciting for me. And some Wharton friends had, con- had, had actually um, helped me to, to, pr- to bridge that because there were some other Wharton people on those teams. Yeah. So, uh, and I verbally accepted, was ready. To, my, my family moved back to Philadelphia. We got our daughter into a local school here. Yeah. Um, and, but before I signed on the dotted line, I was introduced by the then CEO of, of, of Random House to the global CEO of, of, of Random House. And on the day I met him, I said, you know, this this is crazy. I know we're just meeting here, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know, I wrote this project at Wharton five years ago, um, and in and he looked at it and it said, you know, uh, Penguin, you know, private equity, uh, private equity uh, proposal, and it was dated May two thousand eight, my graduation date, when I handed it in to you, which is like <laughs> a week before I graduated, and uh, and Marcus Dole looked at it and he said, that's the month I started here as CEO, <laughs> and, and he's like, and now. We are merging with Penguin. <laughs> so uh, so all of a sudden, this theoretical thing that we had done together, you know, five years before, all of a sudden became a host of ideas that we could, in fact, implement in the real world, looking at both what domestically Penguin could be as well as globally, but now in the context of Penguin plus Random House. And the other funny anecdote, of course, I had worked at Penguin, as I mentioned, 
Uh, my wife had been an editor at Random House for 13 years before she had our daughter and then became a, a wow. writer slash ghostwriter. So I joked to, to Marcus that we had effectuated the Penguin Random House merger years before it was a <laughs> gleam in the eye of Bertelsmann and Pearson, um, which had a similar reaction to you. So we got to consummate that um, professionally and uh, bringing those two uh, great companies together. And now we have the capacity to do things that separately they could not have done. And my team is part of the answer of unlocking that potential for the company. Fascinating story, especially the nice uh, tie there at the end. You know, I think that's, uh, you know, you've clearly had a stellar career and and serve as a great role model for uh, UPenn and Wharton MBAs. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Brendan. It's been great to see see you and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's great to connect with you. Um, Is there anywhere where people can follow uh, what you're doing, what your labs are doing, maybe Twitter or other places? We do have Twitter accounts. We only post on it very occasionally because we sort of keep things secret until we spring them. But uh, I'd say stay tuned for the weeks to come. There's some big stuff cooking for this summer. Wow, that's certainly very intriguing. I shall stay tuned and pay attention. We need to take a short break now, but when we come back, I'll be joined by Brian Fields, Vice President of Things to Do at Groupon. I'm your host, Saika Choudhury, and this is the special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Celebrating Wharton's reunion weekend, where past alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome back. I'm Saika Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. And this is our special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, 2003 Wharton MBA grad Brian Fields, Vice President and General Manager of Things to Do at Groupon. And before leading this team at Groupon, he was the Vice President of Corporate Development at the company, and previously he worked for the Tribune Company. Brian, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. How does it feel to be back on campus doing all these great things and now coming on radio to share a little bit about all the things that you've been experiencing? It's awesome. It's, uh, it's been 15 years since I graduated, and it's, it's fun to walk through Philadelphia and see all the amazing changes in the city, a uh, ton of economic development, a lot, lot of new things to see as I walked from Center City over to campus. Uh, the campus looks spectacular, and it's it's just invigorating to be back on campus. Glad to hear that. You know, we're trying to get Amazon HQ2 to come here as well. So I'd like to put in a plug, a plug for Philly as well. You just did that for me, which is great. Uh, I, 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 Philly would be my second choice after Chicago. So. <laughs> we didn't hear that part, but, but it's good that you at least see it in second place. All right. So... I, I wanted to ask you about Groupon, about your role. Uh, the first thing I actually want to ask you is, what is it that you exactly focus on and do? Because this title, Vice President and General Manager of Things to Do at Groupon, right? It, it intrigued me a lot. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's a, it is a rather broad category. <laughs> uh, and it, it is comprised of a lot of the... Uh, the things we sell that people associate with Groupon, which is experience-based products. Yes, uh, and it's it's our uh, it's our live ticketed events business, which is uh, concerts, sporting events, mm-hmm. uh, family, uh, and comedy, uh, and it's also our leisure segment. So, uh, museums, attractions, uh, recreational sports like skiing and golf, uh, wine tours. Uh, wine tastings, uh, axe throwing, all kinds of uh, <laughs> fun stuff that uh, people use us for to discover and, and save some money along the way as well. That's exciting. I mean, Groupon is a company that has been uh, expanding and reinventing itself over the last years, in part to try and overcome various challenges. How do you see that process going? Where are you, where are you in that evolution? Yeah, it. It's interesting that the company grew. It's considered one of the fastest growing companies ever uh, in getting to a billion dollars. Yes. And we did so uh, on a model that uh, really focused on uh, 
daily deals and, and pushing out a small number of deals to a lot of people. And there's been a, a lot of opportunity over the years to improve that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we've done is we've uh, our vision and our North Star is to become a marketplace for local commerce. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we're, we're focused on connecting customers with local businesses. Mm-hmm. And it's required a lot of pivoting over the years uh, to make our product easier for our merchants to work with mm-hmm. and to make it easier for the customers who buy from us to, to, to use, to mm-hmm. buy and use. And it's, it's an ongoing process. Uh, you know, we look at it as just you, you're, you have a North Star vision, but you're yeah. rolling the ball forward all, all the time on that. And you, you don't necessarily ever arrive uh, at your North Star. You just keep that as your vision that you're, you're working towards. Yeah. What role does innovation then play in, in, you know, keeping you honest on the one hand, but also trying to come up with these new products and services in particular, and these offerings, if we say, that that you're looking at? Because it's evolving all the time, right? Or you're augmenting mm-hmm. that set. Yeah. A, a number of, of – uh, one benefit we have is we just have this huge customer base. We have 50, yeah. 50 million active customers globally. Yeah. And we, our mobile app has been downloaded 177 million times. So – we have this large sandbox to play in. Yes. Uh, and it requires, uh, in the various businesses we're in, they're, they're dynamically changing and, and highly competitive. So we do have to try new things all the time. And yeah. uh, over the years, things like Groupon Goods, which is our, our physical product business, yeah. uh, began with just a, a test of selling uh, a pair of headphones over, over a weekend. And, and we ended up selling... Uh, tens of thousands of units of it in a weekend, and we said, "Wow, we, we're obviously onto something there." Yeah, um, and that's now grown into a you know a two billion uh, plus business on its own. Yeah, um, and so it's really been a focus on on how do we uh, take advantage of that large base of merchants and, and customers who. Lo- love using us and introducing new things to them. So do customers give you ideas or is it the data that you get from the feedback essentially by introducing new things in the market? Yeah, it's it, it's a mix. Um, we're obviously uh, always uh, looking for feedback from our customers on, on mm-hmm. things that uh, we're doing that they like and things that, uh, that need to be improved. Uh, but it's it's a lot of it's based on, on data as well. Uh, it, Groupon, the mobile app, I think of as uh, it, it's a store and, and there's limited shelf space. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we're maximizing the use of that shelf space uh, for our customers, for our merchants and our shareholders. That way, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of all this experimentation, you know, clearly a lot of things have worked well. And those are the ones that we see staying. What has not worked so well? Because we can often learn. Experimentation is not just about, oh, I have something and it's perfect from the beginning, right? What has not worked well and what have you learned? Yeah, we um, we try a lot of things, and and uh, some of these businesses that we're in are just really hard. It's it's hard uh, working with small businesses yeah. uh, that aren't always as technologically savvy and connected as larger companies, which is you know, yeah. the space that we're largely playing in. So we have we have gotten into areas over the years like uh, uh, point of sale systems and payment processing yeah. that. Uh, we had a, a, a hypothesis behind it that something we wanted to test, yeah. Uh, and we we uh, clearly lay that out, yeah. And we give it a shot, and sometimes we learn, like in those instances, that that's not the right, uh, that's not a scalable model, yeah. Um, uh, point of sale, in particular, it's a very long enterprise sales process, and as our business was growing so quickly, we we found we weren't able to scale that as quickly as uh, to keep up with the with the core business, yeah. So um, the learning must be a continuous part of the process. How do you make that happen? Is it just hiring people with the right attitude, or is there more to it process-wise and organization-wise and how you structure yourselves? It's both. Uh, the, the, look, the people is really – it's a really important yeah. aspect of this. You, you, have to, uh, you have to be comfortable coming into an environment that is both a mix of a large company and a startup company. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's because uh, we have – thousands of employees are in 15 countries there's billions of dollars of revenue flowing through it and we're publicly traded so there's a lot of aspects of a, of a large company there but at the same time we've been uh, pivoting our business model towards mm-hmm. this marketplace and you have to you have to be able to work in a uh, matrix cross-functional technology uh, company that's both managing to wall street and managing uh, a large business while uh, building for the future as well yeah we we certainly have a lot of process behind it as well. Yeah. And I, 
when, when we test new things, we, we try to be very rigorous about you know, using our resources wisely. Yeah. So having a strong hypothesis on the front end yeah. uh, that's uh, documented in you know, a short short memo that we agree upon. Yeah. What, what are we testing and what are the key metrics that we're looking for yeah. to understand if this is something we should go forward with or not? And then yeah. what's the least expensive way to test it? Yeah. Uh, what's the fastest way we could get there? And then looking at the various toll gates along the way and saying, are, are, are the metrics that we expected from this being hit? If yes, keep going. If no, uh, try to understand why and if there's a way we can influence it. And yeah. sometimes you get to a point where uh, you say this is this is not something we're going to go forward with because our underlying hypothesis was was not accurate. So you just hope you can get there as fast as possible and as inexpensively as possible. Fascinating. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to the special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Chaudhary, and my guest is Brian Fields of Groupon. And we're talking about how to really think about innovation at Groupon, which has pivoted over many years into what it is now. I want to. I loved what you said, which is that you have to have a mix of uh, a startup as well as an incumbent company feel. And the reason I like it is because there are a lot of myths and notions around there, which are not always correct. One notion is that the startup has all the advantages and the incumbent doesn't have any. The second notion is that um, incumbents are really being disrupted and someone's going to get rid of them. It's very hard for them to respond. And, you know, most of them will just go away. A number do, but not all. And the third is startups will never grow up. They will always remain startups and always be agile. But, of course, that's not true. When you look at the likes of Google as well, you know, or Facebook, they are no longer startups. They are being disrupted. They can't come up with everything great. So I loved what you said about this balance of a startup mentality coupled with these um, benefits from the established firm or needs, such as processes and resources and brands and all those things that you have, but you lose a little bit of the iner- the uh, agility sometimes as a result. Can you talk a little bit about the trade-offs of you know this hybrid mentality and how do you balance that? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and um, again, it's, I think it's a place you want to get to as a business where yes. where there's there's nothing. Nothing at all wrong with having a lot of resources at your disposal and, and having ideal, hopefully built a moat around your business model, which affords you the ability to to experiment and yeah. test. Um, I think that the key is that you have to you have to have a culture yeah. that doesn't have a fear of, of failure. Right, you can't penalize that too much, and uh, you have to empower the teams mm-hmm. to uh, make decisions and move quickly and not become too political in again in a large company that can happen mm-hmm. um, we do something that we call uh, tiger teams where we take uh, small teams of leaders across the company who are uh, come from cross-functional backgrounds and we give them a problem to solve mm-hmm. um, and they have to report very frequently back to our management team mm-hmm. on what they're learning and uh, they typically get assigned a, a key metric mm-hmm. uh, to work against uh, and you know we track whether the metric is green or yellow or red and mm-hmm. um, and they report back to the team every couple of weeks uh, to, to, again, drive like a rapid innovation cycle uh, and making sure that we're taking advantage of all the cross-functional resources we have. I love that. And so you've built into your structure um, actually the openness, the creativity, the agility with that process or the accountability in order to manage both sides really well. So you get some of the autonomy or the freedom to think and do things, but you've got certain uh, goals that are set for you and, and feedback mechanisms uh, in order to achieve that. Yeah, with, without the accountability, something like this could could turn into a, a sprawl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or uh, you know, uh, an intellectually interesting project that doesn't end up getting the level of uh, you know kicking the tires on it and yeah. actually pushing it forward and, and making sure that that you're driving towards something. Yeah. Uh, again, typically. The way we look at it is, you know, what do we have to believe to invest even more in, in this idea? And that's what we're trying to get to as fast as we can. That makes sense. Um, and um, I think in, in splitting up, you know, Google into, say, Alphabet and the mainstream part of Google, they kind of recognize that, too. You know, it's cool to do experiments and all these things. But at some point, you've got to figure out what's the business model around it, too. Exactly. You mentioned the culture of innovation. That's clearly important. And one of the things is to empower people and uh, mitigate the risk of a failure or rather give people the comfort that even if they fail with these experiments, that's uh, maybe not a negative thing and perhaps a positive thing and they learn a lot. How do you, it's easy to say, 
How do you actually inculcate such a culture in the organization? I, I think a lot of it is just you have to build trust with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and how you, you know, what you say is important, but what you do is often more important. And uh, so, so, you know, the truth is that if, if, if you have a, a, a team that's taking a risk and mm-hmm. it doesn't work out and, and uh, how you treat that team after is, is what is going to drive culture across the company because everyone's watching, yeah. uh, particularly anything that's high profile that doesn't go forward, which happens. Uh, that that people have invested a lot of time in. What do you what do you do with the team at the end? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they rewarded with an even more challenging opportunity and, and something exciting, or are they uh, sent sent off to Siberia? And, um, <laughs> and and so we we focus very much on making sure that uh, uh, putting people you know with high potential uh, and future leaders into those roles, yeah, uh, and making sure that you know when it's time to roll off those roles that they're they they go into something really positive and challenging for the next one, which recognizes that that there's learnings in, in failure. That's such a powerful mechanism because in this day and age, people share and talk uh, about everything that happens all the time. So both the negative examples, but also the positive ones, they really come to the fore. So um, that's a nice way to do it. And if you treat people well, then that quickly gets around the company. One thing I wanted to come back to in terms of your business model, you emphasize that you focus on the local businesses, right? So Groupon comes is really about... I want to be, you know, working with local businesses, the smaller businesses, and have that local focus. Is that sometimes a constraint in a in a world where we always talk about global and macro and and scale things, you know, to as many people as possible? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, so it certainly is is part of our competitive moat, I'd say, in that we've built mm-hmm. all these connections with small businesses, mm-hmm. uh, and it's. It's been hard to do, and it's taken a number of years to build uh, the plumbing there and the trust mm-hmm. uh, between Groupon and small businesses. It for 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 us, it's that we're capitalizing on on a big theme in in the world, which is uh, you know m- millennials are a big part of our target audience, yes. and they value uh, experiences over material yeah. purchases in many cases, and yeah. Uh, so, you know, building a thriving local community. Uh, and by the way, local can mean a local coffee shop. It could also mean, uh, you know, a Starbucks reserve. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be a mom and pop chain. It's the point is it's the fabric and the thread in your community. Yeah. And having that thrive so that you can have as many great experiences as you can, uh, whether it's a restaurant again or a, a things to do or a concert or, or getting a massage. Yeah. Uh, really resonates with our audience. Uh, and so I think while there's certainly a lot of implications a- around business with uh, operating globally, yeah. what our focus on is really connecting people uh, with businesses that they can walk to, they can you know take a short drive to. Yeah, and I think you guys had grown so quickly and also globally, so it was good to scale that back and, and refocus on markets that you can handle, right? Yeah, that's been a big, a, a big part uh, when we... Uh, Rich Williams, who's our current CEO, came on board a couple yeah. of years ago. Was uh, we, we had a very large footprint in, uh, I believe, forty-seven countries. We, yeah. we, we have fifteen now, so we yeah. really scaled back to the where we thought we were positioned to win, and that winning would mean something. And that's important. You know, I think that's a very important lesson for people. And it's not just about growing, growing, growing. It's also about consolidating. You know, making sure things are in order, cleaning up house, maturing. Yes. That's all part of the process, right? I mean, that shows a company's mature. And you you bounce back that way. You know, it's uh, no company that we can think of that's been around for a long time has done so because they've always been at the top. They've always had challenges and overcome them. And that the adaptation part is really the key. Um, You've clearly, Brian, accomplished a lot of things and uh, you will accomplish many more things, I'm sure, as well. How has Wharton helped you in this journey? Wharton is is an essential piece of the whole process and – it's uh, you know, it, it, there's there's a few things that I, that I got here that are just uh, again invaluable. One is the quality of the education. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to take uh, two two years out of out of the workforce to uh, to really focus on on my business education is uh, it's a luxury and it's yeah. it, it's something that um, I think everyone here takes really seriously because it's a high opportunity cost decision you make. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's, it's, it was a top notch education, but over the long term, 
it, it's really uh, beyond the core education. There's two other things. One, uh, the network of folks that I got to know here over the two years. Yeah. Um, it, it's a it's a peer group that is just – it was humbling at the time and it becomes even more humbling over time at how accomplished they are. And being able to go back to those folks, whether it's uh, for an introduction or to bounce an idea off them or yeah. uh, you know, to, to get feedback on a, on a potential career decision yeah. uh, is just an invaluable resource. Yeah. Um, and then the brand, it just uh, – wherever you go globally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of, of being a Wharton grad and yeah. it, it means something uh, in the world. So it's, it's been just a huge part of, of my career. What's one piece of advice that you would give to current MBAs um, based on your experience? That's a good question. So, um, you know, I the way I've managed my own career is just I've, I've always looked for challenging opportunities. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of resumes of, of folks who are, you know, more or less of, you know, in, in the graduating MBA phase of their career. Yeah. Uh, and they've bounced around a lot. Um, and it, it's tempting to look at the the shiny object that's out there, yeah. um, but it's also valuable to to see a problem through. Uh, I've been at Groupon six plus years, yeah. and I've learned an awful lot. and And there's advantages of staying with something for a while, and as long as you're still on yeah. a steep learning curve, and you're uh, you're, you're you're being rewarded f- for your time there, but yeah. uh, not just looking for the next the next thing. Actually, sticking with something and and reassessing uh constantly whether that's the right place for you and again whether whether you're on a steep part of your learning curve but um but not abandoning abandoning things too soon that's a great piece of advice um because people make decisions all the time any other messages or anyone you want to say hi to while you're here on the show yeah I, I, tomorrow's mother's day so of course i want to uh wish a happy mother's day to my wife jamie and my mom uh so happy mother's day let me echo that. Uh, I think moms have done a lot for uh, everyone, and uh, I'd like to echo that. I think that's a wonderful acknowledgement. You know, we are who we become, not just because of ourselves, but because of those of us who've uh, nurtured us in many ways and support us in many ways. So I think that's a wonderful acknowledgement that you uh, just made. On. Thank you. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a fascinating conversation. How can people find out more about what you're doing or keep up with the things that you do? Uh, I, I'm on Twitter uh, at Brian Fields, uh, and, and certainly Groupon uh, ha- has a, 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 a feed that we, we keep up uh, on an hourly basis. So, uh, <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But thank you all so much for joining us for our special reunion radio broadcast. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, then just email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And of course, you can follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle at Mac Institute and our website, where we'll also be posting about the show. Once again, a special thank you to our guests today, Brendan Cahill of Penguin Random House Labs and Brian Fields of Groupon. I'd also like to thank our producer, Brian Drew, as well as our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Until next time, I'm Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute of Management, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.